Okay, good morning once again. We are continuing today with our hard sayings of the Bible series, and I, and I, and I want to do today's uh, hard saying a little bit differently. Uh, if you receive this, uh, the, the, if you're on our email list, um, you know how I set this up already. This is the question I asked, and again, I feel like it's kind of appropriate given uh, uh, all the, the world events. We can make an application there, but the question I asked, does God punish people through their circumstances? Does God punish people through their circumstances? In other words, if a bad circumstance befalls me, could that be the punishment for some sin that I committed last week, last year, or something even 10 years ago? Okay, now that's the question I ask. And without explanation or clarification, let me just, let, let's just take an informal poll here. Uh, and again, this may get a little uncomfortable. And this, this is a hard saying this is, a, this is the hard, one of the hard sayings of the Bible, not because it's difficult to understand in terms of, you know, what's being said. It's the fact that he's saying something like this uh, that makes you say, what, what, what's going on here? Is that, what does he mean? So let's just, let's just get a quick show of hands. Do you think that God punishes people in their circumstance? If they're going through a bad circumstance, could that be God's punishment? Yes. And show of hands. Some people saying yes. How many people say no? How many people say, I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> all right, good, good. A good representation all the way around. Okay, let me, uh, let me start off with a few real life examples for you just to get your heads primed for the conversation, just to start putting some flesh around uh, some of this, uh, uh, this conversation here. Here's scenario number one. Back when my brother and I were still teenagers, my brother had been driving for, oh, not more than, than two years. He drove a little Honda Civic, a little tiny Honda Civic. And, and he was in a parking lot. And he was looking for a space to park and he got stuck behind somebody. And that person was taking too long. And so he just said, you know what? I'm going to go around him. And so he pulled around to the left. And right as he was pulling around to the left, that's when they decided to go and claim their parking space. And they plowed right into the side of my brother's vehicle. Now, when my brother got home and he described the circumstances to my parents, my mom my mom let him have it. <laughs> my mom let him have it. And she often listens to the recording of this. She'll be so pleased that I'm talking about this. So she says, you see, John, that's my brother's name. You see how impatient you are? You're so impatient sometimes. How many times have I had to talk to you about being patient? God let this happen to you. He let this happen because of your persistent, impatient spirit. Okay. So that's scenario number one. That's scenario number one. It's being suggested by my mother that God has moved his hand in some manner as a result of my brother's persistent impatience. All right. Now, hang on to that thought. Okay. Now, here's scenario number two. It must have been about two or three years after that. I was on my way back to school. I was in college and I commuted from off campus. And on my way back, I got a hankering for a quarter pounder with cheese. And lo and behold, there are the golden arches. And so it was a lot of stop and go traffic. And uh, I had to turn left across traffic. Lane one stopped so that I could get through. They gave me the go ahead. Lane two said, yeah, I said, great, I'm all clear. I go through, ah, there's a third lane. <laughs> it was a turning lane and bam, they collided. And, uh, and fortunately it was a pretty bad uh, uh, accident and, but no one was, was hurt, uh, thankfully. So again, I head home and I go to face my mom. And, uh, and again, before she had a chance to say anything, I spoke first. I I'm so sorry this happened. I'm so sorry this happened. I had no idea there was another lane. Now, please tell me, please tell me, mom, the great prophet. Tell me why. Why did this happen? Wh wh what sin am I paying for now as a result of, of going after this quarter pounder with cheese? And do you know what she said? She said, 
I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, I'm not sure why this happened. And, and that was a bit of a disappointment to tell you the truth, because I expected to find out some kind of great truth that, uh, that, that, what, as to why this happened. And, and it's nice to know sometimes that, well, maybe there's no reason for this happening. Maybe, maybe it's just a random event in, in time, space, history. Uh, so that's scenario number two. Okay, keep that one tucked in the back of your mind. Maybe, maybe this bad circumstance happened for, for no particular reason. It was just a random event in time, space, history with no discernible reason for it happening. Now, keep in your mind as to whether or not you agree with that, all right? That's scenario number two. Here's scenario number three. And for this, we're going to turn to the passage of Scripture, which is where we find our hard saying. And what's interesting about this hard saying is that we get an answer to the hard saying presented right away. Jesus gives an answer right away, and uh, which is what we want, right? But in my estimation, this is why it qualifies as a hard saying, because it's a hard answer. It's a hard answer that he gives us that, that maybe raises more questions than answers when we hear it, all right? So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 9, folks online, John chapter 9, or you can follow with me up here, uh, and we'll start with verse 1. This is John chapter 9, verse 1 and following. It goes like this. As he passed by... Uh, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. He then, uh, he anointed this man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So what's going on here? This is a man who was born blind. The disciples see him and asks him, you know, who sinned? Was it he or his parents that sinned, right? Now, first things first, why would the disciples ask a question like that? Why do you think they'd assume that this negative circumstance is an indicator of, so where'd they get that idea from? It's a bit of an odd question because you would assume that these disciples are familiar with the scriptures. You would assume that they have knowledge of people like Job, uh, who, who that would point us to the fact that God makes it clear that suffering doesn't always have a, a direct tie to sin, right? Or does it? Or does it? You have to remember, you have to remember the reason any sort of suffering exists. The reason any evil in the world exists is because of what? because of sin, because the world is broken. The, the, the reason for suffering, pain, decay, and all those things that are in the world today is because of sin. So, so perhaps this is one reason the disciples are trying to tie sin to this man's condition. So, so suffering exists because of sin, but this man, but this man blind, is it because he was committed some sort of sin or was it his parents? You know, he's trying to try tie direct line to it. Now, that's the question the disciples ask and what's Jesus' answer? He says to them, he says, it wasn't, it wasn't he or his parents that sinned. Neither one. The reason his condition exists, the reason this man suffers, is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the disciples present sort of this false dilemma to, to Jesus. Is it A or B? A or B? And Jesus says, well, it's neither one. Neither one. There's another reason. It's the glory of God. That's why this man was born blind. Now, for those of you that know me uh, and have been following uh, this and been in this class for, for a while, you've probably heard me say on more than one occasion that when Jesus performs any miracle, it is never a naked display of power. 
it is never just for the, the, the sake of, of showing what he can do. It's never for the, for, for, for the sake of impressing a crowd so they can say, wow, it's never that. There's always a reason behind what he's doing. It's, there's always a pointer. You're going to hear Scott talk a little bit about that too this morning. It's very, very uh, ties into the same thing. It's, it's a sign. It's not the thing. Even, even when Jesus performed a miracle, it was not, that was not the thing to focus on. It was always a pointer to something else always a pointer to who he was or what he was there to do on a, on a much bigger scale. And after this man was healed, he left there seeing shapes and colors and, and beauty for the very first time. Before this moment, he had no concept of what anything looked like. He'd been born since, since or uh, born blind. Only what his imagination formed in his mind was, was what he could perceive. And soon he was called back by the Pharisees who asked him essentially, seriously, well, what just happened? What just happened there? What actually happened in verse 24 of John chapter 9, same chapter, verse 24, says this. So for the second time, they called this man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. So again, think about what this is pointing to. What's the sign here? What's, what's going on in a bigger scale? What Jesus did on this small scale, he was there to do on a bigger redemptive scale. Opening the eyes of the blind man only served as a metaphor for what he would do to you and I as well. Same thing. Though we had no inclination, though we, we could not, for, we can only form things on our own, right? And, and that was wrong. Our perception of that was wrong. Though we had no desire to seek him, he opened our eyes to something that we didn't have any concept or imagination for. Romans 5, 8 reminds us, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies of God, while we, while we ran from him, Christ died for us. So in this particular instance, sin is not the direct and immediate answer. The bad circumstances that this man was born into was not as a result of his sin or the sin of his parents. Rather, it was so the glory of God could be put on display. And that display was one that displayed the fact that Christ had power over sin. Christ has power over sin. That not only, not only could Jesus conquer sin, right? Not only could he conquer sin, but he could also undo it. He could turn back the clock of sin and evil and those things. And that's what he's there to show us to do. See this man who is born utterly blind? I can undo that. And I'm going to undo that on a much, much bigger scale. He can make something new again and undo the effects of sin. Okay, now, that's, that's what's going on here. And that's what he's saying here. So now, if we try and bring it forward to where we are in our any given circumstance, is this passage telling us that whenever we have a negative circumstance in our lives, that it's there for the purpose of putting God's glory on display. Is that what the passage is telling us? Never mind, never mind punishment, never mind any of that. Negative circumstances exist so that the glory of God might be put on display. Is that what's happening here? Is that what we can say about us in every circumstance that we face, whatever the negative consequence is? In a sense, you could answer with a yes. Ultimately, as he did with a man born blind, he'll undo all the effects of sin. He's going to bring about a new heaven new earth, Revelation 21, his glory will be on display. But, but let's, let's get more granular with it here. 
Let's get more granular with this and, and circle back to our original question. Is a negative circumstance ever a punishment for sin? Is a negative circumstance ever a punishment or sin? How about this? Or does punishment for sin ever serve as the means whereby God's glory is put on display? All right. First things first. First things first. Let's define what we mean by punishment. Punishment is one of these words that we've used a lot. And I think a lot of us have grown up with the idea of punishment being punished or punishing our kids or, or one of those things. And so we immediately think, uh, we immediately think that sometimes sort of there's this uh, uh, good meaning behind it. Okay. But let's, for clarity's sake, let's, let's define that there are two types. Let's stipulate there are two types of punishment. All right. We'll categorize them as punitive punishment and corrective punishment, punitive punishment and corrective punishment. Now, for all you wordsmiths out there, I realize that punitive punishment is redundant. I get it. But stick with me here for a minute now, and you'll see where I'm going with this. Because again, it seems that we've, we've maybe misused the word punishment for a little, for uh, maybe a, a few generations. And should, maybe we should be really using different words. Okay, but hang with me and you'll see what I mean. But for now, punitive punishment. Punitive is a, is a punishment that God exacts on a person or people as an act of judgment, okay? It's an act that comes as a direct result of sin. God destroyed the earth uh, in a flood in punitive judgment as a result of sin. It was a punishment from God. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in an act of punitive judgment as a result of sin. Now, so do you see what I mean by what I'm talking about when I say punitive judgment, punishment, okay? Uh, is God, uh, it is God looking at sin and punishing the subject for their sin. It can be said it's an act of divine wrath, all right? These are heavy concepts, but again, hang with me here. This is, this is a, a really deep concept. Now, here's a question I have for you. Does God exercise punitive judgment on his children, yes or no? Does, what's your answer? Does anyone else want to answer? No. Did you? He does? Does God act, does God enact punitive judgment on his children? You say yes? Long-term or short-term? <laughs> That's a good question. It's a really good question. All right, let's, let's dig in a little bit more, okay? I'm going to say, for the moment, you're going, to see where, you're going to see where I'm going with this, and I think you and I then will be on the same page. He does not. He does not. In the flood, all were destroyed except Noah and his family. He spared Noah and his family. Why? Because they were innocent? No. Was Noah without sin? No. He was a sinful person. All right? But he was marked by God. He was marked by God and therefore set aside. He was a man set aside by God. He was a child of the king, and the king does not exact punitive punishment on his children. Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, but who, who wasn't destroyed? God spared Lot. Why? Because Lot was a child of the king, and the king does not exact punitive punishment on his children. Why? Let's unearth it a little bit. Romans 8.1 tells us this, and if you understand this, you see where I'm going. There is therefore now no condemnation no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, all right? That means, and again, if you're going through our Christ in the Shadows uh, four-group study or small group study, you'll know that even the people in the Old Testament are saved in the same way that the people in the New Testament are saved. 
still saved by the blood of Christ, by grace through faith, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means if you are in Christ, if you are a child of the King, there is no punitive judgment that you have to face because Christ has already taken that judgment on your behalf. This is, this is one of my favorite things to try and articulate for, for people that, that haven't taken time to, to really think this through. Because if I could get people just to understand this one thing, I think it would change their outlook on life. Okay, because a lot of us probably go through the world thinking that God is mad at me. I'm a Christian and I try and do all the right things, but God is still mad at me. I want you to understand this for those of you thinking that. Think about this. God is perfect, right? Yes or no? Is God perfect? Absolutely. Emphatically, yes. We can all acknowledge that. As a part of his perfect character is, is the fact that God is perfectly just. God is perfectly just. He, again, he's not just just, he's perfectly just. And what that means is that no sin goes unpunished. If he's perfectly just, that means no sin goes unpunished. No crime or act of treason committed against the creator goes ignored because he's perfectly just. And he must perfectly deal with sin and perfectly apply the right, exact, appropriate justice for every sin committed. Now, if we had a perfect justice system here in the United States, that would mean that no one would get away with anything. No, but that doesn't happen here. We don't have a perfect justice. We have, we have a good justice system, but it's not perfect. It's got a lot of flaws. And people get away with things all the time. But again, God is perfectly just and therefore knows the exact right punishment to apply to every single infraction committed against him. All right? But since Christ stood in your place... If you have faith in Jesus, since Christ stood in your place, since Christ absorbed your punishment, since Christ said, in effect, whatever sin you committed, I'll pay the price. I'll take on the divine punishment of God on your behalf. I'll take on the wrath of God. Since he did that for you, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. You've been absolved of your sin. Okay? So to suggest that the negative circumstances that you might be in as a result of God punishing you for sin that you've already committed is to suggest that the punishment of Christ paid on your behalf wasn't sufficient. And you see how, how crazy that is to say that, well, Jesus covered most of it, but every now and then when you do something wrong, God's still got to punish you for that. It's to suggest that the punishment that he paid on the cross wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. But again, he's, he's paid for all of it. Every last tiny peccadillo, as they say, is a little tiny sin. Do you get that much so far? We still got more to develop, so hang with me. But do you get that much so far? Okay. If you're in Christ, he's paid for every last single sin, every punishment that you had coming to you for every little tiny sin that you did, he absorbed. He took it. He got it. He said, I'm taking it. It's not that God just says, let's just forget it never happened. He still has to put the punishment somewhere, and he puts, puts that punishment on Christ. Okay, now, God does not, we'll say for now, follow with me, God does not punitively punish his children. He does, however, correctively punish them. All right, he does, act, he does correctively punish them. What's the difference? What's the difference? When you correctively punish your children, what are you doing? Perhaps you're, you're taking something away from them. Uh, to correct a certain behavior. If your child lies to you, why, why would you take away their favorite, favorite toy or their, their phone or their car <laughs> as they get older? Because, because they lied to you and you want to correct that behavior. 
you want to change their behavior so they learn to stop lying to you, right? Someone, this is, this is a really difficult one. Someone really recently asked me about corporal punishment, okay? Do I believe in the use of corporal punishment? In other words, is it okay to spank your child? And, and that to me is a really complicated question. You know why? Because whether, whether or not you know it, whether, whether or not you felt this growing up and interacting with your own parents, but, but parents are reflection, all parents are in some manner a reflection of the heavenly father. The way you and I look at our parents impacts the way we look at our heavenly father. And so what that means for those of you who are parents or who aspire to be parents, the way you discipline your child should be a reflection of how our heavenly father disciplines us. And again, this is the right word to use here, discipline. Discipline is different than judgment or discipline is different than punishment. All right. Discipline has a teaching component to it. And once again, our Heavenly Father does not punitively punish us, but He does correctively punish us or correctively discipline us. So having said that, I would suggest that we therefore only correctively punish our kids. We should never punitively punish them. That is, our punishment should never be an act of wrath. Our punishment should never be an act of anger, okay? And how many parents are able to, in the moment before they spank their child, ask themselves, am I, am I acting in love or anger? That's a tough check to do in the moment, okay? It's a tough question to ask in the moment. So I'm really reticent to tell any parent, yeah, it's okay to spank your child because I can't be sure they understand this theology. And I want them to really understand this theology before they enact any sort of discipline on their child. Understand this. Understand this piece. Understand the theology that's being laid out for us. God does not act in wrath or anger towards his children. So the goal for punishing our children should always be as an act of love to correct their behavior, to point them to Christ. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Are you still you following with me? You're tracking? We're getting closer? Okay. Now, let me put a wrench in the works for just a minute. And this is where it gets hard. This is where it gets really hard. If you remember when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, it was the prophet Nathan who confronted him and revealed his sin to him. As a result, David saw his sin. David realized his sin after he was confronted by Nathan. And it says this in, in 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 13. This is David talking. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Is that punitive or is that corrective? Again, what's the object of corrective punishment? Corrective punishment is God's means of correcting us, of shaping us, and making us into the image of his son. That's his objective. Corrective punishment means to sanctify us, to, to cause us to die into sin and live under righteousness. It's a means of, of correcting or changing behavior. Now, I know this is difficult to view as corrective. I know that's difficult to view as corrective because it seems awfully harsh. What did that poor little baby have to do with any of this? Why did he get wrapped up in all of this? But make no mistake about it. Even this is corrective a punishment designed to change the heart of David, a punishment designed to move him closer 
to the presence of God. And how do we know this? How do we know that's where this is going? Look at the same chapter. This is 2 Samuel 2, 12, uh, 2, excuse me, 2 Samuel 12, verse 18 and following. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was alive, we spoke to him. He did not listen to us. How can we say to him that the child is dead? He, he may do harm himself uh, some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Whatever it was, whatever the circumstances that came about, however they might affect you or I, those are the circumstances that drove David to worship. These were the circumstances that drove David to the side of God. This, this, is, this is an act, not of wrath, but of fatherly discipline. Okay, listen to what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 7. So this is Hebrews 12, starting in verse 7 and following. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Again, the right word here is discipline. Discipline, this is, discipline is so much different than, than judgment. Discipline is different than, than punishment. Discipline is something else. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. What we just read about David, that's painful. That's painful. But remember, we serve the God that undoes evil, that undoes wickedness. And so for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than, than pleasant, but it later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Are, are you understanding here? Are you seeing the connection here? The difference between punitive and corrective actions of God? Punitive and corrective. If you are a child of God, punitive, it's over. You don't have to deal with that anymore, but corrective, we're, we're subject to that all the time, but it serves a different purpose. It's not, it's not for wrath. It's not out of anger. It's because you're being trained by it. You're being changed by it. Okay, so, so now let's rewind a bit, and we just have time probably to do this. Let, let's rewind a bit, all the way back to scenario one. Remember the first three scenarios that we started with this? Is it possible that the Lord was punishing my brother for his impatience when he was involved in this car accident back in the day. You know, yes, it's possible, right? Would this classify, would we classify that as a, as a punitive action against my brother or a corrective action? What do you say? Certainly corrective, certainly corrective. So in that sense, my mom was absolutely right. This is corrective fatherly discipline, discipline designed to yield the, the, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And my mom was right, okay? It was God's means of sanctifying my brother. All right, back to scenario two, circumstances of my car accident. Was that a circumstance of no apparent purpose? You know, it, it certainly had a purpose looking back. When I look at it now, I could probably identify a number of lessons learned, again, that sometimes don't show themselves, don't, don't you realize until years after the fact, you know, 20 years even, 20 years after the fact. 
But can you say that those lessons learned from that circumstance drew me closer to the side of God? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Maybe one of them was, was stop looking for, for peace in a quarter pounder with cheese. That could have been one of the, the lessons there, right? But yes, it was a sanctifying experience. You know, and I'll just tell you candidly that I remember when uh, it was such a horrific car accident in the sense that I was entrusted with this car uh, as, a, as a young man, maybe 18 years old, and to see it was my parents' car. It was demolished. But somehow they were able to rebuild it, you know, piece by piece. And it was just it was over the process of months. And, and by the time I got it back, I promise you, you know, it was a Honda and, and Honda rebuilt the car themselves. And it, it, was, it was impeccable when I got it back. I know you say, oh, it's been wrecked. But I'm telling you, it was a wonder. I, I couldn't believe how perfect they got it in spite of the fact that it had been so wrecked. And the, to the point that when I got it back home, I drove it, I parked in the garage and I fell to my knees. I fell to my knees because I was so thankful to God that it could have been so much worse. It could have been awful. And again, as a reflection of how our God operates and how he undoes evil, I got a picture of that. For the first time in my life, I got a picture of that to saying that, that this is what God is doing on a bigger scale. And it dropped me to my knees. And so again, was that just a random event that happened in time, space, history for no reason? Oh, you better believe it wasn't. You better believe it wasn't. That even in the moment when something so terrible and something so random, even God is using something like that to bring you closer to his side. If you are a child of the king, there is never not a time when he's doing that. He's always doing that. Always. Whatever circumstance you're in, you can be assured that he's using those circumstances to bring you closer to his side, as painful as they might be. As painful as they might be in the moment. The third scenario the man who was born blind. Jesus himself told us that this wasn't a result of sin. His suffering served a purpose of putting God's glory on display. However, could it still be considered a means of corrective discipline? I'd say you better believe it. You know why? This was the event that caused him to believe. This was the event that pulled him closer to his side. So again, yes, it was something that was happening to, to tell us something of what was going on on a big scale, but it was so personal to this blind man. It was so personal to him that it, that it, it had changed the way he, he looked at life. Literally, he could see it now. And he believed. He left that place believing. I don't know, he said. I don't know whether he's evil or not. I just know that I, I once was blind and now I can see. Thank God. And with that, you know, I got to put a pin in that. I had one more thing to say about that. And again, it was in light of, of circumstances like what's happening in Ukraine. I would pump the brakes Anytime you get the impulse to say, when you see something like that, now oh, that's, that's God punishing the people for fill in the blank. Don't do that. <laughs> because like I said, I promise you there are Christians in Ukraine. I promise you there are Christians in, in Russia right now that are living through these circumstances. And it's awfully, it'd be awfully way out of your league to try and, and, and say something along the lines of that's God acting in anger there. Again, we, we live in a broken world, so every evil thing that we encounter is a result of sin. But again, God uses all kinds of circumstances. Read, read the account in Genesis of, uh, of Joseph and uh, how things seem to get better, or th excuse me, things seem to get worse for Joseph before they got better. And in the end, Genesis 50, 20, what does he say? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's the difference. That's the difference when we look at circumstances like that. Even in something so awful like that, God uses circumstances like that to, the glory, to his, own, his own purposes, his own glory. And uh, 
I had a couple other verses here, but let me end with this one. And this should frame our, 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 our hearts and minds around everything that, that encounters, everything that befalls us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So once again, that's what I leave you with. If you're his, if you're a child of the king, God is not mad at you. His anger is, is over with you. When Christ said it is finished, his wrath against you was finished as well. You no longer face punishment. You no longer face wrath. You no longer face anger. You will have to live with consequences of sin. But again, even those consequences of sin are designed to shape you and mold you and, 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 and make you walk in the footsteps of Christ. Even, even consequences of sin can act that way. And God uses those things for because all things, all things work together for the good of those who are called, who love him and are called according to his purpose. All right. And that takes us to 1056. Those of you that got to get to the service, I know you got to get running. I'll stay up here if you have any other thoughts, comments, or questions uh, before we leave. I'm glad to entertain those. And uh, whether you have them online or uh, in person here, please uh, uh, send those questions and concerns my way and let me close us in prayer. Uh, thank you for your attention, by the way. Thank you. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to wrap our minds around this. We know it's not easy. We know it's difficult when we consider all the circumstances that every one of us, every single one of us faces a different set of circumstances when we leave this building. And sometimes it is difficult to distinguish between uh, what's going on in our life, whether this is something good, whether it's a blessing, whether it's a curse, but Father, help us to remember that if, if we're in you, if we put our trust in the work of Jesus Christ, that punishment for us is over. It is finished, your son said. Help us to remember that. And remember that whatever we face, good or bad, as we would perceive it, help us to remember that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Write that on our hearts and minds. We thank you for your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.